My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica, Season 3, Episode 20, The Pirate Prince. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Dr. Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I'd like to welcome new members of the House of Lords, Tura, Earl Nilsson, and Earl CSB. Like all of our patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. And the new Earls can listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last week, we saw the Commonwealth's suppression of the colonies of Barbados and Virginia, At Barbados, a three-month blockade of the island eventually led to a revolt against the royalist governor, Lord Willoughby. To avoid a civil war on the island, which would weaken the European grip over the 13,000 enslaved Africans which worked the valuable plantations, a generous peace was agreed. In Virginia, the arrival of the state's navy led to a very swift capitulation from the royalist government. In both Barbados and Virginia, among the peace terms were conditions which permitted the two colonies to trade with other nations. This was what they had been doing for quite some time, mostly with the Dutch. But recently the Commonwealth Parliament had attempted to forbid the practice. The ink would barely be dry on the Navigation Act of 1651 before Barbados and Virginia had been allowed to ignore it. More on that later. Because we have some loose ends to tie up. Specifically, two German princes, sheltering in the French port of Toulon. If you recall, their small royalist fleet had been blockaded in the Portuguese capital of Lisbon by Robert Blake. After a seven-month blockade, the royalists were able to escape and sail through the Straits of Gibraltar. Blake followed them and caught and destroyed most of the flotilla at Cartagena. Blake had been recalled to England, mission accomplished. But Rupert and Maurice, in Toulon with their two remaining ships, had not given up the fight. Their cousin Charles, the exiled and future Charles II, was writing to them, and being very clear that he needed money from their privateering in order to keep the royalist cause alive. Maurice had brought a captured ship with him to Toulon, and by selling the goods on board and borrowing heavily, the prize ship was converted for battle, 
and the other two ships restocked and refitted. Survivors from the disaster at Cartagena filtered to Toulon over the winter, and a civilian English ship arrived in port and pledged service to Rupert. Captain Craven's ship was renamed the Loyal Subject, and Rupert's flotilla began to expand once again. Of course, the Commonwealth knew where Rupert was. The intelligence network of the Commonwealth and Protectorate will get its own episode, I promise you that, because it's very effective. But Rupert knew they knew where he was, and that information was flowing back to London. So he set about spreading word that he was going to lead his ships to Corsica. The Commonwealth took the bait, and the state's navy were waiting east of Toulon. But then Rupert went west. He captured a Genoese merchant ship on the way, only to find it was only carrying food. Useful, but not really the treasure his crews wanted. They then captured a Spanish ship by flying the flag of the Commonwealth, luring the galleon to dock with them, and then surprising the Spaniards and seizing the vessel. From there, they sailed to the island of Madeira in the Atlantic, where they were welcomed and where they could sell their ill-gotten gains. Now they had to consider their next steps. Rupert favoured sailing across the Atlantic, to support and be supported by the royalist colonies which had spurned the new republic. But it seems that the crews were not interested in sailing so far from home, preferring instead to look for safer ports in the Azores, the Portuguese islands in the Atlantic. Not only would it be even more dangerous to cross to the Caribbean, their ships were starting to show their wounds. Rupert's ship, the Constant Reformation, had sprung a leak which, despite the best efforts of the Royalists and of Madeiran divers, could not be found or patched. Rupert was in a very vulnerable position. He was liked by his crews, he shared their burdens, he shared their food, he was on the same terrible rations as they were. Time and again, he looked out for his men, and they loved him for it. But he had no higher authority to call on. If the crew mutinied, there was nothing his royal cousin could do to punish them, and they knew it. Worse, the Commonwealth would welcome them with open arms. They had an alternative. So, to keep the crews happy, the Azores it was. They reached the island on the 15th of July, 1651, only to find that they were not the safe haven many of the crew had hoped for. Rupert sent someone around to all the ships, who demanded a written opinion from each captain. Should they stay here, or sail to the West Indies? Rupert insisted on written answers, because the captains then couldn't as easily change their minds. The majority admitted that the Caribbean would be their best choice. Rupert prepared his fleet for the crossing. Unfortunately for the prince, a summer storm swept in on the islands. The Reformation was still taking on water from the leak, and for three days the crew bailed as much seawater as possible to try and keep the ship afloat in the storm. After those three days, it was clear to everyone that the Reformation could go down. Preparations were made. Rupert ordered his cannons to be fired regularly, their deafening noise the only thing that could pierce through the gale to tell the rest of the fleet where the ship was, in case survivors needed to be rescued. Sailors worked around the clock to bail the ship and plug any holes, and Rupert even ordered 120 pieces of beef to be used as plugs. But the force of the storm was too much, and water flooded in faster than the crew could bail. The cannons were pushed overboard by the crew to give them more time, 
but it was just putting off the inevitable. The Reformation was going down. The other ships were signalled, warning them to be ready to collect the crew. The chaplain went around, comforting where he could, and announcing where he would be when the ship went down. Any who wanted to join him could go to him, to pray and die together. The weather was unrelenting, the main mast snapped in the gale, and the other ships could not approach the Reformation without the waves slamming them together. Rupert later recorded in his diary that his crew insisted he take the last lifeboat and escape, but he repeatedly refused. He claims that, not taking no for an answer, they pushed him into the lifeboat and forced him to survive. This meant he was rescued by the honest seaman, upon which was his brother Maurice. Despite the two princes demanding that the ship sail closer to rescue who it could, or at least send out their own lifeboat, the captain of the seamen refused to risk it. When the constant reformation went down, it took 333 crew with it. When the storm finally died down, the flotilla discovered that the loyal subject, which had volunteered at Toulon, had been smashed against some rocks, and most of the crew, including the captain, were missing or dead. But Rupert and Maurice still did not sail back to the continent, or return to the exiled court empty-handed. With their surviving ships, they sailed south. Once back in the Canary Islands, they learnt that the state's navy was still searching for them. So Rupert sailed further south, and then east along the coast of Africa. They stopped off at Argan, a European trading outpost which had changed hands quite a few times. It was currently held by the Dutch, and with the deteriorating relationship between the Commonwealth and the Netherlands, the Royalists received quite a few supplies from the commander of the Dutch outpost. The Royalist fleet, all three ships of it, were refitted with Dutch and Mauritanian assistance. This Grand Armada consisted of the Swallow, with 42 guns, and the Revenge and the Honest Seaman, both with 40. Their voyage then took them to the Portuguese colonies in the Cape Verde Islands. Here, the governor was very friendly. Charles Spencer suggests that this friendliness was partly out of embarrassment, because back in Europe, the Commonwealth and Portugal were now on good terms. The governor supplied the flotilla, and then informed Rupert that there were Commonwealth trading vessels on the River Gambia, and he should go and get them. But he'd have to leave quickly if he had a chance to catch them, Rupert took the bait, and the governor breathed a sigh of relief to see these enemies of his state sail away. Instead of finding English ships, the royalists found Spanish ones. But no matter, they captured them anyway. At one point, three of Rupert's men were captured by locals, including one Captain Holmes, who was a close friend to the prince. When negotiations failed, chaos and violence followed, and Rupert was shot in the chest with an arrow. He took a knife and removed it himself, and despite the depth of the wound, it was bandaged and it didn't become infected. The royalists then returned to Cape Verde to the governor's embarrassed horror. That embarrassment and that horror soon got worse, because the royalists then captured an English ship that was at the port. How exactly the governor was going to explain that to his government, I'm not sure. The new plan was the same as the old plan to sail to the West Indies. But this was still an unpopular decision, and when Rupert announced it, it lost him a ship. The Revenge mutinied and sailed away, and would eventually defect to the Commonwealth. But the Atlantic crossing finally happened, 
in summer 1652. To put it simply, this was far too late. The English colonies in the Caribbean were firmly under Commonwealth control by this point. To make matters even worse, when they finally made the crossing, they arrived just in time for the hurricane season. Over four days in September, as they sheltered near the Virgin Islands, a hurricane destroyed most of Rupert's ships and killed hundreds of crew. Rupert cared for the men under his command, but among those lost at sea in that September storm was perhaps his closest friend, his brother Maurice. He who had fought throughout the civil wars and had followed his elder brother in these years of naval guerrilla war was lost to the ocean. Rupert never gave up hope that somehow, on some uncharted island, his brother had been washed ashore alive and well and would one day return to him. No one saw his ship go down, and he'd been presumed dead before, and those reports had always turned out wrong. More than a decade later, Rupert was still sending ships to the Caribbean to scour it for traces of Maurice. As Spencer puts it, without Maurice, Rupert was incomplete. Perhaps more than any other loss, this ended Rupert's campaign. He'd seen similar defeats and disasters before, both to enemy action and to nature. To add insult to grievous personal loss, Rupert found that he'd made the trip for nothing. The Caribbean, so long sitting in Rupert's thoughts as a royalist haven, was fully conquered by the Commonwealth. Combined with the loss of his brother, this was enough for Rupert to give up. He sailed his two remaining ships back to Europe, which limped into the port of Nantes in March 1653. After recovering from his voyage, Rupert travelled to Paris and the court of his cousin. Since leaving Helvetisloos in 1649, he had spent 1,500 days travelling more than 15,000 miles. He'd captured 31 ships. He'd survived at least two deadly storms, been shipwrecked once, faced down Portuguese officials, Gambian warriors and mutinous crews, carved an arrow out of his own chest, endured the same terrible diet as his crew, and lost his brother. Rupert arrived in Paris from Nantes, and despite his clear sickness, he still cut a dashing figure. He had always stood out from the crowd, he was exceptionally tall, but now he had a rugged look from four years at sea. He came with a retinue of grizzled sailors, speaking dozens of languages and of multiple ethnicities, including a young boy who had stayed with the prince after what Spencer depicts as a misunderstanding at Argen. He even had monkeys and parrots with him, to complete a piratical stereotype that won't exist for hundreds of years. Rupert's welcome to the royalist court started off very warm. Here he was, the hero of the royalist cause, But the atmosphere became positively arctic when everyone realised that he wasn't coming back laden down with a fortune. Rupert reported that he only had about £14,000 worth of goods, and that was including the value of the ships and their guns. And he wasn't about to hand it all over to his cousin. His cousin absolutely expected Rupert to give it all to him. He was a king. He was his king. But Rupert, to his credit, insisted that his crews be paid first, and the rest be sent to the merchants of Toulon, who had loaned him money on his word and reputation. In fact, now it came down to it, his cousin owed him. 
He'd been out there, risking life and limb, living on stagnant water and sailor rations, while Charles was living in luxury. Now, it might have just been the luxury of an exiled prince relying on the charity of other monarchs, but Charles was still living in a palace. And Charles had better not start on his oak tree story again. Rupert had carved an arrow out of his own chest, and for goodness sake, Maurice had died. It's hard not to sympathise with Rupert's position here. He'd sacrificed a lot for his cousin's claim to the Three Kingdoms. And for what? It wasn't like they were his kingdoms. Rupert had never even been to them before the outbreak of the Civil War. And with the Peace of Westphalia, the Palatinate had been restored to his family. He could have gone home, but instead he stayed to fight for his cousin's throne. I'm not surprised he arrived in Paris and found his relatives to be ungrateful. Eventually, the dispute over money was settled, with Rupert's crew paid but the Toulon merchants left hanging. The court received a portion of the money too, but not enough to satisfy. Cardinal Mazarin, Louis XIV's leading minister, insisted that as their host, he had the right to some of that money too, and he sold the ship's artillery at a bargain price. No one was happy, and it was a difficult time for Rupert. In his biography of Rupert, Ian Roy notes how close Rupert was to an ironic and underwhelming death, when in June he went for a swim in the Seine and almost drowned. Instead, Rupert stayed at the court, politically powerless, resenting and resented by his relatives. After about a year, in June 1654, Charles picked up and moved out of France. At that point, Rupert parted ways with his ungrateful family. Instead, he roamed post-war Europe, seeking his fortune and his rights as a prince of the restored Palatinate. His brother, Charles Louis, was now the elector Palatine, and Rupert arrived in Heidelberg fully expecting that he would receive land and money. He didn't. When he travelled to Vienna to meet with the emperor, as was his right as a prince of the empire, he was given short shrift. He travelled to Italy, then to Hungary, then to the Baltic, offering his services as a general, but he doesn't seem to have had much luck and his only command seems to have been an expedition into Swedish territory in Pomerania, and that was only in 1659. He kept in touch with his cousin, and despite the rift, it would eventually pay off after the restoration. But for now, Rupert, Prince of the Rhine, General of Charles I, Lord Admiral of Charles II, Privateer, Pirate, Exile, is out of our story. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? 
Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned how the terms of Virginia and Barbados' surrender had, effectively, ignored recent laws passed by Parliament back in London. A lot of leeway was granted to the commissioners who drafted the terms, and the colonists were promised that the conditions would be honoured by Parliament. And it was true, Parliament did endorse the terms, but there was a not small amount of criticism and uproar over the conditions which allowed for free trade. Besides constitutional questions over whether the agreements could ignore statute law, there were many people in London, including many MPs, who had pushed for the Navigation Act in the first place. It was seen as a vital part of the new regime's finances, and the financial success of English merchants. There was quite a lot of overlap seen there. Yet now they learned that England's most profitable colony, Barbados, and its oldest colony, Virginia, were to be left outside of the new system. The terms of submission were nevertheless accepted. Loyalty to the new republic was worth looking the other way, for now. So I think it's high time we actually talk about the 1651 Navigation Act, because despite the hopes of free trading colonists, it will be important. The Navigation Act of 1651 was a more focused piece of legislation than the Embargo Act of the previous year, in that it didn't really touch on colonial autonomy beyond their trade with the outside world. But on that trade, it was really explicit. As Jonathan Barth succinctly summarises it in The Currency of Empire, authorised by Parliament in October 1651, the Navigation Act inaugurated a new era of mercantilist controls over English and colonial commerce. First, the Act stipulated that no goods were to be imported into England from the Americas or from the East Indies except in vessels owned either by the English or by English colonists. Moreover, the vessel had to be manned by a crew of at least three-fourths English or English colonial. Second, neither England nor the colonies could import continental European goods except in vessels owned by the English, English colonists, or the country of origin, the initial producer. This latter regulation effectively outlawed the Dutch carrying trade of Baltic and Mediterranean goods to England, as well as the Dutch carrying trade of European goods, German linens, French wines, to colonial consumers, end quote. The Navigation Act didn't just come as a reaction to colonial affairs, as a development of the Punitive Embargo Act, but also as a way to shore up the Commonwealth's finances. The costs facing the government, especially the maintenance of its expensive army and navy, meant that the Commonwealth needed to secure its revenue. To quote Bath, most agreed that mercantilism provided the answer. A managed, 
regulated trade designed explicitly to draw gold and silver into England, in public and private coffers alike. The Navigation Act epitomised this vision, and colonial Dutch trade was among its many targets." End quote. As a reminder, because it's been a while since we've covered trade, mercantilism was the economic consensus, if you can call it that. Thomas Lang describes it as, quote, a vague set of assumptions about the belligerent nature of commerce and the inevitable need for state regulation of it, end quote. In other words, international trade was seen as a zero-sum game. For one country to win, the others had to lose. We've seen this before with the English government limiting the amount of silver bullion which could be exported for exchange in Asia. This was seen to be lost forever, even if it was in exchange for valuable and exotic goods. English governments going back centuries had tried to limit the role of other nations in England's international trade, and in a sense, the Navigation Act was just a return to form. Elizabeth I had her own act of navigation passed in 1563, which really annoyed Flemish and Dutch merchants, but which lapsed in the 1580s. The Navigation Act was enforced throughout the 1650s, initially laxly but increasingly stringently, at least in European waters. Over that decade, around 300 ships were seized in the English Channel and the North Sea, most of these being Dutch, for breaking Commonwealth law. But on the other side of the Atlantic, the Navigation Act was poorly enforced. Besides the conditions baked into the submission of Barbados, Antigua, and Virginia, all the colonies flouted the law when and where they could. Colonial governments will repeatedly punish those who enforce the law in their ports for infringing on their self-government. The Navigation Act has been described as both nationalistic and individualistic. Nationalistic, because it was meant to restrict trade within the empire only to English merchants, and individualistic, because it offered free trade to those merchants, instead of the old and despised monopoly system under the monarchy. If you were an English merchant, you probably benefited from the new law. And it was, explicitly, English merchants, not traders from the other nations of the Commonwealth. This form of mercantilism will influence trade relations within, and importantly, out with the English Empire, being denied profitable trade links with England and its colonies, and worse, having the act enforced with the seizure and selling of foreign vessels which broke the act, would racket up tensions with other European and colonial powers. That's a bit of foreshadowing for you, because next week these tensions will erupt into outright war as the Commonwealth of England meets its first international test. If you'd like to peek ahead in the narrative to the next time the English throw their weight around in the Caribbean, then keep an eye on your podcatchers this week, because I interviewed Professor Carla Pestana about the Cromwellian conquest of Jamaica. Professor Pestana's work on the early modern English Atlantic has been and will remain very important to the podcast, so I was delighted that she agreed to come on. That will appear in your feeds in the next couple of days. This month was the five-year anniversary of Pax Britannica, so to mark the occasion, I've put a link to a survey in the episode description because I really know how to party. If you have a spare five minutes, I'd really appreciate it if you could fill it in. It helps give me an idea of what you're like, how you feel about the podcast, and anything you'd like to see change. The link will be open for a few weeks, so if you're not listening to this episode on release, you might still be able to have your say. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Hanson, Harold Hanson, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz, and the Earl of Hillary, John Watson. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. 
Remember you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.